Good morning, everyone. Man, it is so good to see you. It has been, uh, I was telling somebody down a month with the church for worship, being gone for two weeks for vacation, and then coming down with COVID on our way back, and then staying away for just an extra bonus amount of time just to make sure that we were good and you were good and now we're good and we're here and it just feels so right to to be gathering with the family of God under the word of God. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 50. We are in the last chapter of the book of Genesis. We've got one more concluding message next week and what a rich study it's been the last time that I had the privilege of preaching. It was from Genesis 45, and we looked at Joseph's initial forgiveness of his brothers. And we focused on Joseph as a type of Christ who forgave us in the midst of our devastating guilt before him. And we said that we need to be a church that creates and cultivates a culture of grace, a culture of forgiveness, where forgiveness reigns. And so we are picking up where we left off in that message, even five chapters ahead. The issue with creating a culture of grace, where faith in the grace of God reigns and where forgiveness reigns, is that uh, this is really hard to do. I mean, when we talk about creating a culture of grace or creating a place where forgiveness reigns, it almost sounds idealistic, like this idealistic thing to aim at, but it is not just some tangential hope for a Christian. It is essential to what it means to be obedient to Jesus. It's part of the fabric that he has woven into the everyday life of the Christian to forgive and to be forgiven. You can look at Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We're, we're people who have received forgiveness from God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment pardon from Jesus receives. We just sang that. We believe that, that if we've come to Jesus by faith, that we have received pardon and forgiveness from him for the vilest of our offenses. And so Paul says, look, you are God's chosen ones, holy and loved of God. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So as we talk about creating a culture of grace and forgiveness in our church, this is not an optional, like wouldn't it be nice if we were a place where the grace of God in Jesus reigned and where forgiveness reigned and we were a forgiven and a forgiving people. That's something to aim at. Yes, it's something to strive at, but it's something to obey today. That forgiveness is not optional for those who have been forgiven by Jesus. The Lord, when he was teaching us to pray, weaves forgiving and forgiveness into the fabric of our daily life. He says, when you pray, and he he teaches them, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So this this is a daily prayer that we're praying before God. God, make your name holy here. We want your will to be done here. Please provide for us here. And then he says this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so then he, he finishes the prayer. He, he ends, um, yours is the power, the glory, the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And then he adds one bit of commentary. One thing from all of that prayer that he emphasizes in the following verses. He could emphasize how holy his name is and why it needs to be hallowed in that place. He could have emphasized trusting God with your daily needs and his provision right afterwards. 
But these are the words that he follows, teaching them how to pray with. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I know that this topic doesn't come into a vacuum and that this is really, really hard truth. It's, it's really beautiful, glorious, amazing truth that we have been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. And it is really hard to stomach or to swallow for many of you the idea of forgiving that person, for forgiving that offense. And so I've been praying for you this week that this word would come from God and be applied by the Spirit of God like a balm to the most wounded parts of your soul. And that he would use it like a scalpel to cut away the most callous parts of your heart. And I want this to come pastorally to the parts of your life that feel the most hurt, to the parts that feel most unfair, where, where forgiveness feels impossible or unthinkable. And if we do, it will be a miracle wrought by the Spirit of God in our hearts. So let's pray to that end before we dive into Genesis 50 together. Father, Lord, we praise your name for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? and showing steadfast love to generations. Lord, it is so hard for us in our sinfulness to fathom the degree of our offense before you as a holy God. It's so much easier for us to think that you would forgive us than for us to consider forgiving other people. We have so prone to turn holiness on its head and to view our standing before other people as more righteous, And their sin against us is more grievous than ours against you. Lord, would you send forth your spirit? Would you speak to our hearts? Give us grace to hear what you're saying to us. And I pray that you would make us a gracious and forgiving people who live our lives before you, fearing you and trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 50, we're picking up in... Verse 15 says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to pull a Corey and just give you one main sentence and add the Coreyism that if it's all you take away, then just remember this one sentence. And this is, we're traveling along the text and unpacking this together. The fear of God And faith in his sovereign goodness enable us to live kind and merciful lives, forgiving others like God in Christ has forgiven us. If you're taking notes, I'll say it again. The fear of God and faith in his sovereign goodness enable us to live kind and merciful lives, forgiving others like God in Christ has forgiven us. And we, of course, see that in our text, in the life of Joseph, through the example of Joseph. So first, Joseph's fear of God and his judgments. So I want you to dive into the scene 
with me and just remember some truths, especially if this, you're new or just being refreshed in the story of Joseph. It has been almost 40 years since Joseph's brothers betrayed him and sold him into the land of Egypt. For the first 13 years of that time, Joseph spent most of his time in prison, unjustly, falsely accused, and literally in a pit for the majority of that time. After Joseph waited on God, God highly exalted him to the ruler over all of Egypt, second only in command to Pharaoh. Joseph's brothers come to him in the midst of the famine, and after Joseph tests them, Joseph reveals himself to them, forgives them, and provides for them. That had been 23 years after the initial betrayal um, that they had this reconciliation. And now it's been 17 years since then. He's been providing for them all this time, and their father Jacob dies. So Joseph's brothers express fear to each other that maybe Joseph had only been keeping his peace while their father was alive, and now that sort of this reason for his peacekeeping was taken out of the way, he was going to take vengeance against them. Maybe he had been nursing this grudge or this animosity against them the whole time. And they say it's this double, the words used twice in a row for pay us back. It's like maybe he's going to take vengeance with a vengeance. Maybe he's going to pay us back with payback. Now, I want you to think about their fear for a second because it doesn't seem unreasonable. Joseph is one of the most powerful men in the world. He could do whatever he wants to them without fear of any kind of retribution, without any kind of fear of consequence. So you can think about that hypothetical scenario that people would sometimes give you, like, you know, would you do this if nobody knew or if nobody would find out about it or if you knew that there were no consequences to it? And that was the decision that Joseph was faced with. Now that his father was taken out of the way, He could have done whatever he wanted to his brothers or taken whatever kind of vengeance and there would be no trial. There would be no consequences. So Joseph's brothers appeal to Joseph by way of a message and a mediator. Now I love this just as a little aside. The first mention of forgiveness in the Bible comes from Joseph's brothers using Jacob like a mediator. That there's the request for forgiveness by a mediator on behalf of a guilty party. Now, people question whether or not Jacob ever really knew about Joseph's brother's betrayal or if they're just making this up because it's likely that Jacob would have come to Joseph himself and asked for him to forgive his brothers himself. But regardless, Joseph's brothers appeal to their dad and say, We're the servants of the God of your father. Please forgive us. And Joseph, when he hears their first actual request for forgiveness, it's not recorded in Genesis 45, he weeps. And then they come in after they sent the message and they bow down before him. Here, 40 years after Joseph's initial dreams, and they have bowed down to him again and again, and they appeal to him for mercy. So what is Joseph's response? Listen to this. Do not fear. Listen to his reasoning why. For am I in the place of God? Joseph's example in this text, this is one of the most beautiful examples of forgiveness in the entire Bible. If you're going to understand how and why Joseph forgave, you have to begin with Joseph's fear of God. Joseph fears God and he knows that he is not him. So his response to his brothers appealing for mercy is, am I in the place of God? To enact justice himself or to take vengeance on his brothers would be to assume the place of God himself. And so this is sort of the first ingredient of our own forgiveness. If you are going to forgive those who have sinned against you or who have devastated you, who have wounded you in a way that has caused you to limp since the moment that they hurt you, if you're going to be able to forgive others like we've been forgiven in Christ, it's going to have to begin with the fear of God. And with you asking yourself this question, am I in the place of God? 
Now, what does Joseph mean by that? What is the place of God that he is referring to? Well, we know that God is the judge of all the earth. Abraham asks in the midst of God about to punish Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness, he asks this question, will not the God, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? And this is the question for us. God is the judge of all the earth. Am I in the place of God or can I trust him that he will do what is right? Psalm 94 describes God as a God of vengeance. It begins, arise, God of vengeance. And it's the psalmist crying out because of the wickedness around him. And the psalmist's approach in the midst of the wickedness around him and in the midst of the evil being done to him is to cry out to God, to take refuge in God and to trust that God will bring every act to judgment, that God is a God of vengeance and he will take vengeance on his adversaries, on all the wickedness and on the unrighteousness of mankind. Psalm 96 says, the Lord is returning. Jesus is returning to judge the earth and he will judge the earth with righteousness and with faithfulness. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived at the end of Ecclesiastes when he's writing about life and the vanity of life under the sun says the conclusion when all has been said and heard is this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 through 14 fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment every secret thing whether good or evil so as we talk about forgiving others, we have to have the same mindset that Joseph has. God is the judge of all the earth, and we are not in his place. Every single sin is first and foremost a sin against God. Even the most devastating of sins that you have experienced against you, first and foremost, was a sin against God the Almighty, and he is the judge of all the earth, He is the only one who has the right to judge sin and to repay people for what they've done. And listen to this. He will repay them according to what they have done in his timing. That is a promise of God's word. The prophet Nahum writes in chapter 1, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So this is hugely important for us to understand as believers in the room and if you have yet to place your trust in Christ Jesus for your salvation, God is a holy God. And every single sin under creation, all acts of independence, all acts of man in their own wisdom or for their own pride and their own glory, God will judge and avenge. It is an offense against a holy God, and he will repay people to their face for their wickedness. And so it's a call to come and to f- take refuge in Christ Jesus, the vilest offender who comes to Jesus by faith that moment from Jesus, pardon receives. But those who remain far off and do not come to Jesus by faith, he will repay. And so there is comfort and refuge here for the abused, for the oppressed, for the unjustly wrong, that God will bring every act to judgment. That is a very important and simple sentence. God will bring every act to judgment, not you. And God will, he will bring every single act to judgment. And so if we know this as Christians and we find ourselves still unable to forgive the offense and give the offense over to God, why is that? 
if we know that God is the judge of all the earth and He will do what is right and He will bring every act of judgment, then why our unforgiveness? And the only answer is pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief. We either don't believe that God will actually judge others justly, and so we hold them in prison, in the prison of our unforgiveness, until He does, or we believe that He's taking too long, or I think this is big we're afraid He'll show them mercy. This is the Jonah mentality, right? We, God, we know that you're a God of mercy and we knew that there's a possibility that you might forgive them and it makes me angry. I, I cannot bear to think about you actually having mercy on this person who has wronged me and so I refuse to hand them over to you. God does indeed by the sacrifice of Christ in the place of his people show unmerited kindness and forgiveness to many. And to others, he takes vengeance on those to whom he does not show mercy. He's not obligated to show mercy to anyone. He gives his mercy and his forgiveness to people as a sheer gift of his grace. But here's the issue. We want God to show mercy to us and not to others, not to those who have wronged us. And so we need to let Abraham's and Joseph's questions echo through our hearts. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And this is big. Are you in the place of God? Are you in the place of God to take things into your own hands, either to withhold forgiveness or to enact vengeance and judgment? Romans chapter 12, Paul is writing to believers for how to live lives of mercy and forgiveness. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I want you to hear how supernatural this is. He's saying these people have committed evil against you. And instead of doing evil back to them or having some equal but opposite reaction, I want you to bless them and do what is honorable in the sight of all people. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, now hear this. This is who he's writing to. You are dearly loved of God. He loves you. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is commands from our Father God who loves us and says, vengeance belongs to me. You love them. And either I will choose to show them mercy and I will cover their sin by the blood of Christ or I will enact judgment and my judgment is just, but you leave them to me. They're, the, the reasoning on this, it seems almost jacked up to us because he says, if you love them and you show kindness to them, their judgment will actually be worse for them in the day of judgment if they don't turn to Christ because of the kindness that you showed to them. If you mete out judgment yourself, you are reducing the actual judgment that they will receive from the Lord. It will be worse for them if you leave it to God. So forgiveness begins with knowing that you are not in the place of God. You need to fear God and trust Him. Trust His judgments and trust His timing. 
But then Joseph goes on to say, so his forgiveness of his brothers for this most devastating trial of his life begins with, am I in the place of God? To take things into my own hands, to enact judgment on you? So it begins with the fear of God, but it continues by his faith in God and his sovereign goodness. We read in verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph knew that God was at work in his life, even in the midst of the greatest trial of his life, and he resigned himself to being a servant of God and yielding to his purposes. He, he was able to forgive his brothers and trust in God because he knew that God has always, always been in control and that he was always good. This is crucial for you if you're going to be able to forgive people in your life in the midst of the evils that are committed against you. You have to know and believe that God is always and has always been in control and that he has always been good. This is a truth that is bigger than your life and bigger than your feelings, that we have to bring our feelings and the circumstances of our life into subjection too. Joseph tells his brothers, you devised a plan for evil to harm me, but God was at work all along devising a plan that was greater than yours that your plan could not thwart. He used your evil actions to work his good and saving purposes. This is part of the inscrutable ways of God that are beyond finding out for us that God is at work in the midst of the trials and evils that befall your life to work his good and saving purposes. We've said this before and it really, it bears repeating. God is not turning Joseph's lemons into lemonade. You've heard people use this verse before that way. What, what the enemy meant for evil, God turned and used for good. But that's not what the language of the text says. He's saying that the brothers were devising this evil and malicious plan. And God was designing his own plan that was over and above the scheming of the brothers so that he could work his good purposes. God sovereignly provides over the affairs of man. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, working all things according to the counsel of his will, according to his wisdom. And he's doing so for the display of the goodness and the glory of Christ. In whatever means he is choosing, there are a lot of ways that God is putting the goodness and the glory and the power and the majesty of Christ on display. And how he is choosing to do it is up to him and his good purposes, up to his wisdom. And in the midst of God orchestrating the events and the circumstances of our lives for the glory of Christ, evil men and women are still held fully accountable for their actions. We see this. It's true of the most evil act that was ever committed. In Acts chapter 4, the church is praying before God and crying out to God in the midst of being persecuted by the, the religious people and by the Romans around them. They quote Psalm 2 to the Lord in their prayer saying, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they pray, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So I don't want you to miss this. There were evil people that were working with demonic intent. They had wicked plans that came together against the Son of God. This is the same, they were quoting Psalm 2. This is the same language of 
Let's cast off his bonds from us. Look, here's the son. Let's kill him. Let's throw off his rule, and then we'll be free to rule ourselves. This is the most evil event that has ever happened in the history of mankind, the crucifixion of the Son of God by wicked men. And in the midst of it, the church recognizes and prays to God saying, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Evil was meant by the devil and by man, but God had designed it and orchestrated it and intended it for good, for the salvation of many lives. I think about Judas when Jesus says, the Son of Man must go how it was written of him, but woe to the man who carries it out by the one who betrays him. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. He's still fully accountable for the wicked and the evil of his own choosing, and it must happen as God had designed and orchestrated it all along. Now, I know that as we talk about interpersonal forgiveness, this can feel like heady theological truth. Like how it, yeah, I get that God's always in control, but when I really think about it, it just makes me mad or it doesn't feel helpful for my normal everyday experience. But this is anchoring truth in the midst of breathtaking suffering. God is doing a lot of things to the suffering of his people. More than we can fathom. But I want to give you two. So just praying through and thinking about, because I know that it is so hard to even consider forgiving people for some of the wrongs that people have suffered in this room. But we have to remember and know that God is using every trial Every circumstance of your life, even the ones that happened before Christ, before you knew Jesus, he is using every trial and every pain in the lives of his people for their conformity to the image of Jesus. Eric referenced it from Romans chapter 8 earlier, that God is working all things, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that good, verse 29 says, is our conformity to the image of Jesus. And if Jesus is precious to us, if Christ's likeness is precious to us, then this has the power to be the greatest healing balm for our soul, to know that Jesus is able to take this, even this, and to create something in me that would result in the pleasure of the Father. And if he is able to use this to transform me to change me, to produce Christ-likeness in me, and it results in an opportunity to tell people of the power of Jesus, of the grace of Jesus, of the, the healing that he can bring, if it, if it gives opportunity for him to demonstrate his righteousness in the judgment of the wicked, then like Joseph, I will resign myself to his purposes and say, the wisdom of God is wiser than men. And I don't understand this but I know that Jesus understands my suffering and my weakness and that he is going through it with me. I'm going to read this because I don't, I don't want you to miss this. There's many times in the trials and the suffering of our life that God is giving the gift of our life being a platform for declaring some truth about himself. And in the story of God, there is this creation and there's this beauty and then there's a fall. There's real sin and real devastation like the fall happened in the Garden of Eden. And there is an opportunity for Jesus to bring about redemption and healing and grace and to demonstrate his righteousness. And there are times in your life where the narrative of your life are going to follow the narrative of the overall story and the fall doesn't make sense. The hurt doesn't make sense. It feels unkind, unfair, or God, where were you? But we can see just in the narrative of the whole Bible demonstrating the redemption and the grace and the kindness of God to sinners that he is weaving together a story with your life to demonstrate some truth 
about himself and your life being a platform for proclaiming either his righteousness or his mercy or his grace or his power or his long-suffering and his love, displaying some truth about God with your life is worth more than we could possibly fathom. I was debating bringing up this example, but it's so gripping to me that God would come to Ezekiel. I read this last week or 10 days ago. God comes to Ezekiel and he says, I'm going to take your wife and you can't cry about it. And he was going to demonstrate some truth to the people of Israel. He was going to add power and backup to some prophetic word that God had given Ezekiel to give to Israel. And God took his wife from him. And it's not like, well, they didn't really have a good marriage and Ezekiel didn't care. She's described as precious to him. I'm taking away your most precious possession to demonstrate to my people some grievance, some sin that, that they had committed against me. And Ezekiel obeyed and is breathtaking to me, especially with how much I love my wife. And I'm thinking, this is demonstrating some massive truth. May not be the intent of what it was designed to demonstrate to the people of Israel, but to me in that moment, it demonstrates this massive truth that for Ezekiel to be able to obey God and to proclaim the truth of God, for that to be received by people or demonstrated with power and with the vivid illustration of losing his wife, it was worth it to God to take Ezekiel's wife from him to demonstrate that truth. So what does that tell us about the truth of God and what demonstrating the truth of God with our lives is really worth? And I I want you to hear this. You are not disposable to God. We have to hold these truths next to each other so that you can see how vital it is, how important demonstrating the truth of God, the love of God, the mercy of God with your life is worth. So we know that the Bible says that the gospel is a treasure that we have in jars of clay and that this gospel is worth more than our lives. But demonstrating any truth about God, demonstrating some aspect of his character is worth more than any circumstance in your life, any relationship in your life, anything about your life. He is glorious and it is a treasure of treasures to get to display some truth about God with your life. But you need to remember in the midst of all of these trials that you don't understand, this devastation. Joseph had gone through hell for 23 years. In the midst of that kind of devastation, you have to remember, you are his dearly loved people. He describes you as a people for his own possession, who he has called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if he has allowed something to befall you, he he was not wronging you. God was not unjust to you. He didn't stop loving you. He's not cold and calloused and removed from you in one moment and then lovingly works a redemption, redemptive purpose in another. On this road of following Jesus, it is a road of suffering into his glory, and you will go through devastating loss and suffering. And our consolation in the midst of it is that he will be with us, and he will give us his fellowship in the midst of it, and he will use it to work his saving purposes, either for your own salvation as he sanctifies you and forms Christ in you, or for the salvation of many lives that you cannot yet see. But he is giving you a story of grace to tell. He's giving you a testimony so that you can look back and tell people what God has done for your soul. So in the midst of faith in God's sovereign goodness, here's what I want you to remember. Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. 
Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And all these things are all true at the same time. And he calls us to trust him and to honor him and then to forgive as we've been forgiven. That's the third example that Joseph gives us, Joseph's forgiveness of those who betrayed him. In verse 21, he says, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph goes beyond forgiveness just in theory, beyond I forgive you, but we can't have a relationship. He, he acts on it. He, he not only doesn't take vengeance, but he overcomes evil with good. He comforts them and speaks kindly to them and reassures them of his love and uses his own means to care for them. Now, before you draw conclusions about what's possible, even with forgiveness of people and releasing them and what you need to do to show kindness to them. I'm not saying that this is always going to be possible, but this shows that his forgiveness and the healing that God had done in his heart was actually from a heart that God had transformed. He was forgiving them from the heart. This was not just a forgiveness that was on paper, that was cold and removed. Remember, Joseph's brother's fear was that he had forgiven them just from an external pressure, from, from, all right, he was forgiving us for dad's sake. And now that dad is gone, then he's going to pay us back with a vengeance. And I think their fear highlights a kind of forgiveness that we're prone to extend. A kind of forgiveness that does enough to satisfy the external pressures of what we know Jesus calls us to or because the church is on looking and we want to have this outward appearance of having forgiven. But Jesus says in Matthew 18 that he gives this parable of someone who's forgiven this massive debt and then turns around and chokes out his slave for a debt that was not even a fraction of the size. And this unrighteous servant who's unwilling to forgive this small debt is put into prison and forced to work it off until he's repaid every last penny. And then Jesus adds these words, so, do my, so will my father do to every one of you who does not forgive his brother, listen to this phrase, from his heart. So there is a forgiveness that is not from the heart, that is surface level, that satisfies a external pressures from other people. So I want to exhort you in closing to this kind of forgiveness in the midst of major wrongs, the, the inexcusable wrongs, the wrongs that have caused you to walk with a limp since it happened to you, and everyday wrongs, which I think are so easy for us to overlook. So first, the inexcusable. Now, I want to remind you from the place where we started that Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And he adds, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I want to make sure we understand what forgiveness is and where it comes from. This um, C.S. Lewis wrote a chapter or a lecture that got put in the compilation, The Weight of Glory, on forgiveness. And he said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it means to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. 
want to make sure you're hearing this. Unforgiveness in the heart is like a thermometer. If we receive forgiveness from Jesus and we've experienced his grace, his grace transforms our hearts and makes us gracious. He gives us the power to forgive from the forgiveness that he has given to us. Jesus is the one who cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have forgiveness. The redemption, we ha- in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is where the supply of grace and forgiveness comes from. It has to begin with remembering and understanding where we stand. The forgiveness that we have received in Jesus. Understanding the weight of our offense, the weight of our grievance against the holy God and all that God has forgiven us by his love in Christ. And then he gives us the strength and the power and the will to take that forgiveness and to give it to other people. It is a thermometer. Jesus is not saying that you are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, and you need to add to that faith your forgiveness. Otherwise, the deal is off. If you, you can read this verse that way if you take it out of context with the rest of the Scriptures. If you don't forgive people, you can lose your salvation. You could take it that way. But that's not what he's saying. A heart that has been forgiven by Jesus, who has been transferred from the domain of darkness and has been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, is a heart that is being sanctified by the word of God and a place where the spirit of God reigns and dwells, a place where people surrender to Jesus and to his commandments. And he has commanded us to forgive as we've been forgiven. And so we obey. I want you to hear this. Forgiveness is not saying that what was done to you is okay. This is a hurdle for so many people for forgiveness, thinking I can't forgive this and condone what they did to me. But you need to see this. Jesus has never condoned sin. He, by his forgiveness of you at the cross, wasn't excusing your sin. He was covering it. He was atoning for real evil and real wrong. But forgiveness is a releasing of the wrong and of the person that you're seeking to hold hostage. You're releasing them to God. You are canceling their debt and you are releasing them into the hands of God for him to deal with according to his wisdom and his justice and his mercy. Corey Ten Boom, who we've read about before and I have encouraged you to read The Hiding Place before, has a really moving account after suffering in concentration camps at the hands of the Nazis after harboring Jews and hiding them, went around and taught on forgiveness much after her experience and then was forced to face one of her former captives and actually put all of her teaching uh, all the application where her mouth was. And she did. She, she was praying, in the, and this man had come to Christ since the time that he had been her captor. And he gives her his testimony, and he says, I'm asking that you would forgive me. And she, in the midst of all of her teaching about forgiveness, was sitting there wrestling with the Lord, saying, God, I cannot. I cannot forgive this man. I cannot love this man. I am unable to do it but you are able to give me the strength. And I'm praying, give me your love for this man. And she, by an act of the will, not because she felt like it, reached out and took the man's hand. And she said it was like just the electric presence and power of God coursing through her to love this man in the midst of all of the evils that he had done to her. She said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. This is what unforgiveness does. You think that you're harming the person that you are harboring unforgiveness towards by fostering bitterness 
And at the end of the day, they've gone free, and you're really hurting yourself by living in disobedience to the command of God and trusting God with your hurt and your pain for him to deal justly with the one who wronged you. And I think it's important for people to realize that forgiveness is something that you have to do again and again. You don't just forgive one time and then feel like, God, I thought I forgave that person, but now I feel like I've got unforgiveness in my heart. It is something that you have to do again and again as an act of faith and obedience until he takes it away. And he may never, he may cause you to live with this hurt and this pain that you have to continue to bring to Jesus. And, or the, the person that wronged you, uh, you live with them. And it's an everyday wrong. And it's something that you have to forgive again and again. And you need to hear Peter asking Jesus, how many times do I forgive my brother before it's enough? You just wonder what he had been through to voice such a question. But some of you would ask the exact same. Like, how many times do I have to live with this person doing this thing before I just... I'm done with it. And Jesus says 70 times 7. It's an unlimited, perfect amount of times. You forgive them as much, as often as you've received forgiveness from God in Christ, you take that and bend it to other people. That's the answer. So we have this need not only just for forgiveness for these major offenses in our lives, for the inexcusable, as C.S. Lewis would call it, but also for these everyday offenses. You're given a hundred opportunities every day to forgive and you give people a hundred opportunities every day to forgive you. Whether it's with your husband or your wife, or with your children or with your coworkers, whether they're unintentional wrongs or it's purposeful selfishness or it's disobedience from your children or it's passive aggressive interactions from coworkers or it's malicious wrongdoing. We are are often so tempted to downplay our unforgiveness or our self-pity or our bitterness rather than seeking peace and pursuing it. But if you've experienced the grace of God in Christ, this is, this is so important because I think we live, we live with a disconnect from what we know and love and believe to be true about God and our everyday experiences. If we have experienced the grace of God in Christ, his grace must make us gracious. So there's a question for you. Are you a gracious person? Do you respond in grace when wronged? Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it it is his glory to overlook an offense. I can't tell you how convicting that is as a dad. Like, I don't let any offense go. It's, it's like every, every single thing is a teaching moment. Every single thing is a wrong to catch them in or to teach them to change it so we can have peace in our house. And instead, I'm quick to anger. Instead of being merciful and gracious because I've experienced the grace of God in Christ and have experienced his forgiveness. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so this is the charge for us. Don't make peace with unforgiveness, with the smallest amount of unforgiveness. We have to keep short accounts in your marriage, with your children, with your coworkers. You have to catch the little foxes. You have to catch, Eric and I were talking this week, the weeds while they're small. And if you can deal with things while they're small, while they seem unimportant, you don't let the sun go down on your anger like Paul writes in Ephesians 4, then you can pull up the weeds while they're small and you avoid making this huge mess. Or, or if, if you allow the smallest amount of unforgiveness to go unchecked, the devil will take that and run with it and he will create a firestorm down the road. And so don't make peace with the smallest amount of bitterness or unforgiveness. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 4, verse 30 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, all evil intent. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is so vital. He's writing to the church. It is possible in our church to be bitter and to be wrathful and to be angry and to slander each other, to gossip about each other, or to have little grievances where we nurse them and we allow bitterness to grow. And Paul says, put these away from you and be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted to each other. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So listen to that. How did God forgive you in Christ? Partially, temporarily, or completely and for good? This is a call to forgive with the forgiveness that we have received from God in Jesus and to do it again and again and again. Not merely to forgive, not merely to avoid the evil of taking vengeance, but overcoming evil with good. This is like this language of propitiation. Jesus did not just forgive us of our sins. We have not even merely received justification and a pardon from God. We have proactively been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that only Jesus deserves. When he forgave us, he did not just pardon us. He overcame evil and he did it with all the good that Jesus deserves because of what Jesus has done for us at the cross. Romans 3 says that God is able to be both just, the, the God of vengeance, the one who brings every act of judgment, and the justifier of those who place their trust in Jesus because God poured out his righteous judgment that you deserve on his son. He himself bore God's wrath in his body on the tree so that by his wounds you could receive healing. And this is what Paul means when he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'll leave you with this verse. Jesus speaking to his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 35 through 36. And I would say, okay, these verses that we've talked about with forgiveness, certainly they pertain to the church of God and forgiving people who have also experienced the grace and the kindness of God in Christ. But Jesus takes that and goes beyond that to those outside of the church, those who have hurt you the worst. Luke 6, verse 35. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are coming before you as beloved children, set apart for your purposes, dearly loved by you. Lord, completely forgiven by faith in Jesus because Jesus atoned for our sins and was himself the propitiation for our sins. We have now received peace with you and forgiveness from you. We've received the gift of your Holy Spirit and the gift of adoption as your children. I pray, Father, that we would understand the the weight of sin and the fullness of the gift that we have received in Jesus, that we would see the weight of our offense against you was infinitely more than any grievance that's ever been committed against us so that we would fall on our feet, I mean on our knees, and worship you for your grace and your kindness that you have extended to us. Lord, it is a wondrous and miraculous love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Lord, I pray that your grace would make us gracious. That our nearness to you would produce a fear of you as we live our lives in your presence. That we would fear taking your place, taking vengeance into our own hands, harboring unforgiveness as though we were the judge of all the earth. Instead of entrusting the wrongs that have happened to us and those who have wronged us into your hands, knowing that you are a just God. Lord, help us to trust you, knowing that you are a good God. And God, would you give us grace to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving others like you have forgiven us in Jesus. Lord, it'll be a miracle for us to live this way, but you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we would walk by your strength and not by ours. Lord, would you convict us of our sin? Help us to forgive those who have trespassed against us, even as, Lord, we're asking that you would forgive us of our sins, even as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Would you do it, Father, for the glory of your name? Amen.